This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manese. On today's program, we visit a furniture factory in the heart of Italy's Triangle of the Chair. We also dip into a title that celebrates the vinyl turntable. And in Budapest, we hear from emerging makers. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. In 1979, in a northeastern Italian town, Nevio Mattiazzi began his namesake furniture factory alongside his brother Fabiano. Initially, the family firm produced wooden chairs, but the brand has evolved with the ebb and flow of industry. It's since moved from a brand that produced pieces for other brands to a design label in its own right. I went along to visit the factory and caught up with Nevio to discuss the company's journey. He started by explaining why the surrounding area is such a key location for furniture manufacturing. So the activity was born in the 80s between the municipalities of San Giovanni, Manzano and Corno di Rosazzo, a land which has been called for many years the Triangle of the Chair, uh, before extending to the neighbouring municipalities and becoming the major business of this area. Uh, this is a real localised and limited manufacturing system which, due to it, its importance, has become a true landmark in the chair production worldwide. And during the most flourishing years, uh, this area in the province of Udine uh, used to produce more than 30% of the chairs uh, commercialised in the global market. And nowadays, uh, it keeps on being a globally known territory for its traditions and manufacturing skills. I mean, so, so why is it important to continue those traditions, to continue manufacturing and continue making here? Over time, the result was a deeply rooted activity. Just think about the fact that every single process gave birth to specialized assets in this field, for instance, bending, wood turning, uh, pentographing, drying, sanding, painting, pressing, uh, upholstering, or assembling, and more activities. Um, these are local specializations that you cannot learn at school, uh, but just experience and many years of work can teach you and uh, they are extremely important to gain um, a great quality of the products. So you also mentioned earlier that you know you went out and started your own company. What, what motivated you to set up Mattiasi? So in the um, 70s, 80s, after I finished my um, school path, the job market didn't offer many choices. So um, the production of, of chairs, of furniture, was the major activities in this uh, land. And I decided to adapt myself to this business and to, to start my own uh, activity. I worked for um, some years in my uncle's uh, company in order to learn the techniques of the job and then I decided to um, live my dream to give birth to, to my own company uh, and I started to work uh, alone in this small area um, with just a few machines but that were enough in order to uh, provide finished products to other companies here in the, in the area that were already known uh, worldwide. So he's initially manufacturing for different countries mm -hmm. When did he decide to start the brand? I know it was about 2012, but when did he start decide to make his own furniture? 
So, 10 years ago, um, there was a, a global crisis and uh, that was the, the moment where I started thinking about creating our own collection because at the beginning we were working just uh, on a customized products. So, for, for big companies, big brands, uh, famous brands, I asked myself, why don't we start uh, creating our own collection and so we, we can um, start our own activity with our own brand, uh, so Mattiazzi collection. Uh, and that was uh, before the um, year 2000, more or less. We were already started, so before the year 2000. Nevio, I mean, what keeps you motivated today? So nowadays, um, in order to um, produce chairs, uh, it's not enough to uh, have the uh, knowledge of the single elaborations or uh, production processes. Um, in fact, after the crisis of the past years, we, we thought it was very uh, important to modify completely our DNA. So we invested our resources um, in uh, collaboration with the famous designers, in high-quality products, in um, high-design products also, um, that were very unique, original, and especially environmentally friendly. So uh, the transformation uh, brought us to um, a big um, uh, impact communication, and uh, we started uh, participating to fairs, international events, um, and uh, um, this is a job that I, I really love, and I want to to keep doing um, and keeps fascinating me. My thanks to Nevio Mariazzi and our translator Martina there. For more on Mariazzi, pick up a copy of Monocle's December-January issue on all good newsstands now. They say you host the Monocle Daily for two stints in your career, once on your way up and once on your way down. It's good to be back. The Monocle Daily is our early evening show, live from London and Zurich every weekday at 1800, that's 1900 CET. Join me and our expert panels as we review the day's events in Europe, follow developing stories in the Americas, and welcome early risers in Asia and Australasia. The Monocle Daily also features reports and analysis from Monocle staff and correspondents around the world, and a host of fresh features taking a wider, deeper or lighter look at the news. Join us for the Monocle Daily every weekday at 1800 London time, 1300 on the east coast of the United States, right here on Monocle 24. There's been a resurgence of interest in consuming music in an analogue format with many contemporary listeners opting for more tactile ways to enjoy music. Enter the turntable, a technology that has developed and been housed in numerous guises, from rounded corners and bright bake-like casings to one particularly notable iteration, the SK4 from German manufacturer Braun, clad with a Perspex lid, a Dieter Rams design that's nicknamed the Snow White Coffin. A new title from Fiden, Revolution, the History of Turntable Design, delves into the various developments and styles of this technology. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, caught up with the author, Gideon Schwartz, down the line. He begins by sharing what first sparked his interest in turntables. Well, e even going back to my childhood, I seem to have a, uh, 
a romantic connection with audio, in this case, turntables. I always found them fascinating in that they were very simple machines mechanically, a, a rotating platter, a tone arm, and a, a cartridge picking up a delicate signal. And there, there was something so uh, primitive in it almost, but that spoke to me. And uh, it spoke to me in terms of design and also in terms of the musical message that was being conveyed. Uh, there was always something special in it that, that spoke to me. And I think it, it resonated with me as I got older. In the book, you talk about your return to vinyl. So sort of music formats moved over to CDs and that sort of became quite dominant. But tell me a bit about the move away from vinyl for you and, and why you got interested in them once more. Well, like the rest of uh, civilization, um, I was seduced by the uh, convenience of streaming and uh, the internet, and it's just so accessible. And uh, a lot of the music I enjoy listening to is available via streaming. Uh, but I think over time, I felt that uh, the flashes that we get from the internet didn't really fulfill me and the flashes of uh, musical information. Uh, while I do enjoy it from time to time, I think when I want to have the active, uh, meaningful listening, I am drawn towards vinyl. And I think it's because at the end of the day, I feel that vinyl in a way actually is a conduit of uh, musical arts and culture. I feel that we need something physical to transfer this culture and the internet falls short on that. So when I take a record out of the sleeve and I put it down on the, on the platter, there's something unique in that. And I feel that I'm part of musical culture and it's much more enduring for me. And not to mention, of course, the fidelity, which is a subject in and of itself. Fair. And I wanted to sort of sort of gather your thoughts on, I guess, the, the turntable example we have on the front cover. It's quite a striking image of a model from Bang & Olufsen. So tell me a little bit more about this model and I suppose why for you it's such an apt choice and, and symbol of analogue appreciation. Well, it's all about timing. And uh, Bieno introduced this turntable in the early 70s when, if you look at the demographic of turntable design at the time, these were wooden plinth boxes, you know, the kind of turntables that you find in your grandparents' attic, you know, and that you just discard without even thinking about it. And then you have B&O coming out with this space age, just incredible, unprecedented industrial design. And because it, it was so unique, it actually laid the precedence for subsequent turntables. And I think they laid the foundation for other manufacturers to look at the BNL 4000 series and say, wow, we're going to use this as a blueprint and create new designs. And I think it really modernized turntable designs going forward. And in its own way, it actually contributed to the high-end culture, which developed in the 70s and continued into the 80s. And if you look at turntable designs of today, you'll see a, a certain consistency in that modern creativity 
that has continued uh, till today. The reason we chose the BNO is because it really is a patriarch of what we have today. What makes it most intriguing is its linear tracking tone arm, which at the time was certainly not ubiquitous. Its form factor in such a minimalist package really highlighted it as an exceptionally rare specimen in turntable design. But I do think coming back to its linear tracking arm, that really was very courageous of BNO at the time to use a technology that mimics how records are made. And so there was a, a very uh, puristic approach in it. And it, it, it's also very impressive because it, BNO's former turntable was based on the Thorns 124, which came about in the 1950s, really peaked in the 1960s, and BNO collaborated with Thorns at the time. So they were using a platform designed by Thorns, and now in the 1970s, they said, enough, we're going to reinvent the wheel and create something that's utterly uh, unique. And they did that in the 4000 series. And I suppose with this resurgence and in, in interest in, in turntables, that I guess there are there are a couple of classic models that have been sort of re-released and and slightly sort of revamped. And so I just wondered, is it a case of some brands maybe banking on a real nostalgia and kind of maybe resting on their laurels? Every turntable I look at and listen to um, is actually quite different. And that's the beauty in it. Um, there's, there's a cornucopia of designs now, and it appeals to subjective tastes. In terms of the technology, which are in play now, and if you look at belt drives, if you look at direct drives, um, if you look at uh, idler drives, they're all being built now. And so I think that many of these are contributing to the dynamism and it's a wonderful thing to have that variety. You know, what I tried to do in the book was show the, the range of turntable design. A, a lot of these turntables are arguably um, lighthearted and frivolous and really spoke to a certain time when a vinyl replay was fun mm. and portable. You know, picnic baskets with turntables in them or a lot of the Philips designs which appealed to teenagers of the 60s and, and 70s. You know, it was just part of our culture. And the, the uh, industrial infrastructure made it fun. Are you seeing any new talent, I guess, in the field? Any new makers who are just kind of capturing your imagination and, and you think maybe aren't, aren't the big hitters that we know about today, but could be really interesting in a couple of years with a bit more investment, a bit more development. Because you have so many uh, new turntable designs now, which are so intriguing. And each one, as I said before, is, is special, is different in its own way. Uh, there are a lot of turntable manufacturers now that are uh, using older technologies like idler drives, or rim drives to create new products. So there's a, a certain respect for the old technologies, uh, which you see in a lot of new products today. At the same time, we're seeing a lot of new, very inventive 
designs, especially in terms of magnetic drives and uh, direct drives. You're seeing a lot of old, new, but they're essentially conspiring for the same purpose, uh, which is to retrieve those beautiful, delicate signals from NLP's grooves. So while there are differences, I, and they are yielding to older technologies and, and new technologies, they're essentially doing the same thing. I'm just delighted and I'm, I'm so happy that we have a culture now in 2022 where people are buying vinyl and turntables and it, it doesn't matter if it's going to last and you know, you're overthinking about it and, and analyzing it. The fact is that it's here with us now and I suspect that it's going to be enduring for a while. And it tells me that vinyl and turntables are winning, winning the battle against the uh, digital onslaught. And I'm not saying I'm opposed to digital, but we need variety. And I think that vinyl and turntables contribute to that meaningful variety that allows us to put down the phone, you know, put away the computer, take out a record, be mindful of the process, and just listen to music without disturbances and to be engaged in that extremely meaningful process of having the connection with the artist who made that music. And I think it's so important now in, in this life where everyone is just so distracted you know, no one has the attention span to sit anymore and, and relax and actually be mindful of, of, of perhaps reading a book or, or playing a record. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited by what an LP and a turntable can contribute to modern life. Gideon Schwartz there, author of Revolution, The History of Turntable Design. The book is published by Fiden and available at all good bookstores now. Finally on today's show, we're in Budapest, where I recently met a host of emerging designers. The three talented creatives I spoke to were carrying out work with the support of the Hungarian Fashion and Design Agency, which has been developing the country's design and manufacturing sector by pairing young creatives with local makers to craft beautiful furniture and homewares. We hear first from Sarah Keller, a designer working in contemporary furniture and interiors with her own namesake studio. As we sat on some of her outdoor furniture, she shared her inspiration for these pieces. This collection called Kotangens is an outdoor collection and it's based on the Tangens collection, which was uh, an indoor collection, which I designed almost two years ago and had a great success, got many international awards, uh, Red Dot Award and... Uh, Archetypes are good design of art, etc. The inspiration for that collection was uh, to somehow uh, include the human relationships and the human connections inside the furniture because it was uh, made uh, at the beginning of the COVID era and we were really missing the hugging moment of our lives. So the tubular frame is like uh, hugging the, the soft materials. And um, also the materials 
in both collections are, are focused on sustainably new, newly developed materials. For example, the Kotangens is using a banana text material. So when I was designing the, the, the Kotangens collection, which is the outdoor one, I just realized there is a great gap between the indoor and the outdoor furnitures usually. And I was trying to make this transition very smoothly, so get the indoor characteristic, put them outdoors. Usually the outdoor fabrics are very uh, plastic feeling. They have this, this touch, which is not very nice. And I was really searching for fabrics which are uh, nice to touch as well. So we use this banana text and the quadrat fabric as well. I think the dimensions, the colors, the how well made the furnitures are, are very important. When we focus on a space, on a renovation, etc., people are focusing indoor. And usually outdoors comes at the end of the project. And I think also financially, also like time-wise, they are missing the resources. And then I guess just finally, what was the biggest challenge you had taking inspiration from an indoor design to outdoor? What was the hardest part about that transition? Finding the nice noble materials which, uh, which are able to function for months or for years, for many years, I hope. I also met Annabella Havashi, an industrial designer who has just released her first collection. She worked with a historic Hungarian factory to produce her designs and tells us why she collaborated with them. They are a very traditional old school uh, factory and they produce dishes uh, mostly and I wanted to create something new for them. Uh, as, a, as a future product to their portfolio. So it was also, it's not only about you producing your own lighting, but it's also about helping this factory and keeping their heritage and tradition alive. Absolutely, yes. What was it like working with them? Were there, were there any challenges with working in, I guess, this historic factory that maybe isn't cutting edge, although it's making beautiful products? Yes, uh, it is very hard. Uh, it was very funny because the director of the factory came to see the processes because it was absolutely a new thing <laughs> and, and uh, an issue that they wanted to see and, and follow the process. I do a lot of research about the technology, so I uh, was not dependent on their um, support. So basically I, I was able to give them step by step what to do. Um, so finally, the enameling process was not at, as um, complicated as I expected. <laughs> I had the chance to develop entire, uh, an entire collection with products. There is a, a modular light system that I created, a sofa system, a vanishing cabinet, and a room divider, and uh, the entire collection called Burn Geometry. There were a, a Hungarian art historic moment, um, between uh, 68 and 72, where a neo-avant-gardist artist uh, created animal artworks, mural artworks, to architectural uh, fronts. They work depended on the Hungarian Bauhaus movement and Victor Vazarelli's artwork. 
to. Just finally, you talk about the importance of, uh, you know, that Hungarian heritage inspired by the Hungarian Bauhaus. What, what, what has that done for designers like you, that amazing historic legacy? Does that, does that give you confidence going forward? Do you think we're going to see Hungarian design more, more broadly recognised? Or what do you see the future as and how does that link to the past? I wanted to create something that is uh, contemporary, something that can work uh, abroad. But uh, I had to make a self-definition uh, as a Hungarian, young Hungarian designer, and I wanted to define my roots, define myself, my designer identity. And when I asked the question myself, how can I define Hungarian design itself? I didn't have an, an answer. Mm. So uh, I just follow the past, mm -hmm. and I realized that there is a, a sequence in the past which is start with the Bauhaus movement, and it is a recognizable thing for um, for foreign people too. So I wanted to focus on something like this. And after that, a few decades later, Victor Vazarelli uh, was also a very prominent artist. Uh, he was, by the way, an apart painter, and uh, he has a museum in Paris. And uh, after that, at the late 60s, this absolutely unknown artistic group who called Peichi Muhei. Uh, they, they based on these previous works and created something completely new. The artworks that are related to this period are less known than before. So I wanted to focus mostly on them. Finally, I caught up with Matej Horvath of Form Design. We discussed his work and his collaborative process working alongside a carpenter. We are standing in uh, front of a coat rack. This is designed, um, I think, for myself and my girlfriend to, to organise our, our home. And of course the inspiration was coming from, from a Japanese uh, design. And in Japanese the wooden techniques are, have a great history, or a big history and in, in Hungary also. So that's why I want to look at the, the, that kind of, uh, how they're using the forms, how they're making the connections between the wood and the metal parts, because we have uh, uh, metal um, um, hangers that we can turn around. Tell me about the making here. So this is made in Hungary with Hungarian wood. How did you find the right craftsmen to work with? It's really hard in Hungary. And, so and it's historical, why. there's a historical memory yes. of, of working with it. Yes. Five years ago, uh, when I finished university, I have a, I have a mentor uh, called Vasher Hyanos, and he was very famous uh, uh, in Hungary. He, uh, he had a lots of, uh, uh, especially chairs, that are exported to the Scandinavians, uh, the, the German market, and, uh, and also in, in America. He had a lot of friends with craftsmanships, and, and that's, the, uh, that's what I want to follow. And in Hungary I have, uh, I have one uh, uh, carpenter uh, I'm working with, and he's pretty good. So tell me about that, that relationship between the carpenter and the designer. Do you take him designs and then he, he changes them? or like how, how does that working relationship go? When I made a plan, I, I also I not just make the, the forms, I also think through how can we make it. So I'm designing not just the, the foam one, but the technical side of the product. And when I'm finished, I go to the carpenter and show what I made. And of course, he had a lot of uh, think, how can we make it? Mm -hmm. You know, this is uh, too small. 
can it be a bigger one? We need a, a 3D CNC machining. Then how can we simplify the forms uh, to make that? Um, and I think that's a collaboration between a, a, a carpenter and and a designer, and it's pretty good. And we are, we are friends, so we can collaborate together. Tell us a little bit about some of the design features. So you mentioned that you know it can twist and turn. Uh, how did you come up with the decision to have this beautiful rounded top? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, the rounded top is because you can put some hangers there. So when you are trying the clothes, what to wear at the, at the night or something like that, you can then put them at the top. And, uh, and the whole uh, construction can be flat-packed because uh, five years ago I have to move a lot in Hungary and all of my furniture was was in a big one shape uh, and it had a lot of uh, space efficiency I mean and that's why uh, nowadays all of my furniture can be flat-packed so they are easy to move. Mate Horvath there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manese, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>